Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Depraved and Crazy ADHD Podcast. Some people would say we have mental illness, others would say that what we have is unclassifiable in the DSM-5. Regardless, we're glad to have you back. Today we are joined by our host, Ben. Hey, how you guys doing? It's good to have you back. And our new co-host for his second time appearance, Aubrey. Hey, hey, everybody. That was a... Uh, we back. Yeah, we're back in the house. Um, I just finished up a 10-hour shift at the bar, and I am beside myself. Also, I'm pissed because I, I wanted to make some chocolate milk before we started the podcast, and I did not. Dude, make some chocolate milk. No, dude, it's fucking... We're past the point in our turn. If I need it, I will get it, but... If you need chocolate milk, go make it. Dude... Fuck. I w- honestly, I think if we ever go for sponsorships, we need to go for the dairy industry. We need Dairy Gold sponsorship. Yeah, so Dairy Gold, if your reps are listening, chances are they're not. Um, fuck it. Lob your boys some uh, some Dairy Gold money. You heard? Oh, that Dairy Gold that comes in the court. Oh, dude, you're talking about like the old-fashioned creamy oh, style, right? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God, why are you selling me so hard on getting up right now? I mean, we literally just did the hardest part of any podcast, starting. which is starting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but damn, yeah. Um, where were we at? We left off on the last episode. Also, just for you know, those of you just tuning in, the first episode of this season was Aubrey's first uh, tryout, if you will. Not that it was ever a tryout or a competition, but it was his first venture into podcasting. So these first two episodes were kind of letting the audience get to know him, the, the mad lad that he is. And, um, normally our format has more voices here, but I figured, you know what, let's do an intensive. Yeah. We're available. That's the nice thing. Yeah. You know how hard it is to get other people into this room (laughs) especially with like no other selling point we're gonna sit down and talk for a couple hours you down but yeah plus our roommate's gone so but you imagine they're gonna meet bernie pretty soon yeah no i once he gets back from jackpot i think he will definitely bring a more light-hearted head-ass side to this podcast the ben bernie aubrey podcast yeah bba B-A-B. A-B-B. A-B-B. Speaking of which, we got to hit abs ASAP. Ooh, yeah. If I don't have straight up cum gutters by the end of this month, <laughs> I swear to God, bro. Um, But yeah, okay. So we uploaded our first group podcast last night at 3 a.m. in the morning on a fever dream Um. So what are your thoughts? How, I mean, was it cool to hear yourself on Spotify, Apple Music, and the likes for the first time last night? Yeah, to actually have an episode on Spotify was weird. Because I, like me and my brothers, we ventured into podcasting. Because I've, I've got two older brothers, and we were inspired by like, you know, the My Brother, My Brother, and Me podcast, which is three brothers. And... We relate to those guys, so we were always like, dude, we could do this. 
Yeah. Dude, we're interesting. Yeah. <laughs> we got it. And so we recorded like an episode. It wasn't good. And I think my brother said he was going to edit it and then it just never, I don't think it turned into anything. And so I'm just kind of like, okay, well, the podcast dream there ended. Yeah. On the first episode. And then, I, you know, I've had plenty of friends where we always say, oh my God, we should do a podcast. And then, you know, it just never happens. First step's the hardest step. And also laying down money for something that's so hypothetical. Yes. Because you get to the store and you're like, it's going to cost how much for kind of mid-grade gear? You know, it's uh, it's it's definitely a commitment there. Well, and then it's like, oh, I got to learn how to edit. I have to, I have to understand how to do all the shit that I have zero background in. So, no interest on my part. Yeah, no, and and honestly, like I think the barrier to entry on pretty much anything, it's a lot easier if you have someone who's already gone down that path, but. Um, you know, especially with creative ventures and stuff, I think 90% of it is the first step and also kind of staying intentional about it. So speaking of intentional, we were talking right towards the end of yesterday's episode, which by the way, this is not going to come out one day afterwards. We cannot do a one a day schedule here. I think our current goal is two episodes a week if we can. And if people care to listen, that's great. If not, who cares? I like listening to myself. <laughs> Episodes drop, what, Monday, Thursday? Yeah, Monday, Thursday, Monday, Wednesday. I think we did Monday, Wednesday last time we did this. Also, I was looking at our analytics for our podcast, and I realized I hadn't posted anything in 260 days. So <laughs> I have a bunch in the can that I'm going to go through and add back to season one, but Right, we can call this season two, or it's season one of a new podcast. No, I we have such an established brand here. I'd never dream of dashing yes. it. You know, our five hundred loyal followers, five hundred all all time individual listeners. I don't know that we actually get that much recurring listen listening or whatever. But that's actually one thing. Like, I would listen to a podcast if Joe Rogan just talked about his demographics. Like, if he told us how many people were listening weekly, if he told us how many people were listening in different countries, you know, obviously at that point, it's like probably every country in the world listens to him. But it's kind of, I I think it's kind of interesting to get a sense because I don't know about you, I'll listen to podcasters where I'm like, these guys are, you know, either raking in money or not. And like, I think demystifying kind of the idea of like, listenership and shit and the logistics of it and all that is kind of interesting to me but Mm -hmm. anyway four times now i've tried to get back to talking about we were talking about how like the joys of life are part two yeah i mean kind of it's not really because it's not the same conversation it's a separate episode but i figured i kind of liked the topic that we were getting into and i don't necessarily want to not talk about it because you were saying something along the lines of like the mundane is like the most joyful moments of your life and stuff yes yeah i was saying that it's it's be it's hard in the moment to know that you're like at the top so there 
there've been times I can look back on and there's a few moments that most people I think look forward to, right? Like their graduation from high school. If you're a high schooler, you're like, Oh my God, that day's going to come. I'm going to walk down the aisle and it's going to be the greatest feeling I've had in my short life. And then that moment kind of comes and when you're in it, it's exciting, but I don't think you, I don't think in the moment it's ever as much as you thought it would be. But yeah. what's weird is that now looking back, I think about the people I went to high school with and the fact that like there've been individuals who've passed away Yeah, from that class. And then there's, there's all these, um, there's all these memories that I have with only those people and whatever I can't remember only they're like, they're the only ones who can help me recall Yeah, stuff that, you know, was my life, but doesn't come up when I'm, I think back on high school and stuff. And it's like now graduation, it still looms large in my head, even though in the moment I do remember feeling like, God, should I be like crying right now? Cause I'm not should yeah. I be like more excited about these things. Cause this isn't everything I thought it was going to be. But as I look back now, it's like, well, that was pretty much the last moment that we were all together. Yeah. It wasn't even a year later, one of us passed away. Yeah. So in a sense, like they're epic because they mark the end of like a chapter. And yeah, it's almost more significant in retrospect than it was in um, actuality. Yeah, li- living through it was not nearly as exciting or nostalgic or interesting. Well, of course, it couldn't be nostalgic as you go through it, but yeah, it was not like I don't know. You look forward to these things with so much. You see them; they're wrapped in pomp and circumstance. They're the end of movies. They're all these things. When you're doing it, you're kind of just like, "Well, wait, this is just like every other day." But yeah, I'm wearing a funny gown and a hat. Yeah. But otherwise, I'm just I'm still thinking about my weird crush I have on a girlfriend, or I want to get out of here and I just want to be with the boys. Like I, yeah. you know, my feet hurt. I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think one thing that's interesting about life events like those is that there's almost so much pressure to enjoy yourself if it doesn't feel as profound as you've made it to be in your mind. You kind of wonder if you're missing out on stuff. And yeah. I don't know about you, and I don't know if this is just like an ADHD or a men man's sorry mindset, but like there's a lot of times where I'm like sitting around and I start thinking about like, oh, this is going to be something I want to remember, but then there's like this pressure of like, am I doing it right? <laughs> I fought that feeling for the entire senior trip. Oh yeah, that was a tough one. I'm in Europe and I was paralyzed by the idea that like, Am I going to forget how this looks? Because this is the most beautiful thing I've laid eyes on. Yeah. No, you know what's interesting? (laughs) Is like the only thing that has always stuck for me from any of my travels is like the smell of the air. Yeah. Like I crave the smell of Parisian air in the winter. The, Um, The leather on my jacket from Florence. Yeah. I can bury my nose in that, and for a moment, I'm back in Europe. Yeah, no, and same thing. Like, I miss the feel of the air in Ireland, and, you know, I miss the uh, the kind of heavy and earthy smells of Rome. 
and Tuscany. And honestly, of the whole trip in Florence, the thing I miss is my bedroom overlooked the square with like a little carousel and I just kind of would watch people out of it. Like that's what I miss. Like when I miss Paris, I miss sitting at a Parisian cafe and sipping an espresso and watching people and stuff like I don't miss being up on the Eiffel Tower. Those are the stories you tell when you're recalling it is, you know, yeah, I had dinner up on the Eiffel Tower. You know, it was cool. It was nighttime. Like, you know, the light show went off while we were having our main course. Like, that's cool. But like, that's not the special memories. Almost always the stuff that I love the most is the stuff I didn't pay for. (laughs) Right. Like maybe it's because those are the moments that are yours. Yeah. And yours alone. And not contrived in any way, because like, that's one thing. I love the Louvre. I love the Musée d'Orsay. I love the National Gallery. I love l'Orangerie and all that. But like, every time I'm in an art museum, I feel like this weight to be appreciating this or like putting it in perspective or understanding everything that caused it. Right. You're in this building and exhibit that says it screams at you. This is an important thing. Look at it. Uh Get excited about it. And if you're not, it's like, well, sh- like, is there something wrong with me? Yeah. But then maybe you turn your head to some underappreciated piece and you're excited about it. And then that somehow sticks with you. Yeah. It's like the thing, um, I, like I listened to a friend and he was talking about how when he went to see the Mona Lisa, behind the Mona oh, Lisa yeah. is that massive painting. I mean, yeah, it's of the size Paul. of, right, it's I know like the what size you're talking of a basketball cord. Yeah. <laughs> not actually but it's no huge, it's close you know? i mean i'd say it's probably about as big as like maybe half court if not the key right like a couple ping pong tables slapped together it's like that's how big that painting is the amount of work the amount of effort that went into it and then it's like there's this massive crowd they're all staring at the mona lisa this tiny little painting no bigger than like the screen of your laptop yeah and it's like you turn around there's this huge art piece and if you're the person looking at it and it speaks to you while everyone else is ignoring it, somehow that might be the thing that you're actually the most excited about when you leave. Yeah. Even though your friends will ask, oh, did you like see the Mona Lisa? And you'll go, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's another interesting thing is whenever I go to like Versailles, mm-hmm. like the actual palace is cool. Like obviously the Hall of Mirrors is cool, but um, like... My favorite part, far and above, is always just walking through the gardens. Um, and I don't know. I think that part's actually free. I think you can go into the gardens for free. But, like, I don't know. It's just more freeform, less gravitas. Something about a, f- a garden. I was just having this thought. When you're looking at an individual flower mm-hmm. in bloom, it's only going to look that way maybe for a day. And then it won't look that beautiful or it won't be fully bloomed the same. So you pass it and it's there for a moment. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, you know, it's a whole, the tree falls in forest. Like, does anybody hear it? If nobody sits and appreciates that flower in its bloom, like, did it matter at all? <laughs> and yet that might be the one thing about going to Versailles that like you take away. You're like, oh my God, I loved walking around. And just experiencing that. Yeah. Last time I was there was in the dead of winter, so there were no flowers. It was just gray hedges <laughs> everywhere. And really? I loved it. And that that stood out to you? Yeah. I I love the gardens at Versailles. It's like, because it feels like it's interesting. 
you can walk far enough into the gardens to a place where people don't really go and you can kind of you know set out your little piece of versailles um but also it's just so unassuming you know it's just and that's actually kind of spider web but you were talking about like a flower in bloom or a tree that falls and no one hears it like and the question of like does that matter and like from a faith perspective like one thing that's always kind of like been insane to me is up until recently in history there's been so much in the world that literally existed outside of the recognition or understanding of humanity like whether that be the far-flung reaches of space which we can now see with the james webb telescope or like there's all this stuff that exists for no reason except to kind of bring glory to the universe, God, whatever you want to say. But you know what I mean? It's like, like, why are there millions of planets that no one lives on? And they have, they actually have like no bearing on the stability of earth or anything. Like they're, they're not involved in this solar system. They're just out there. Like, there's entire other galaxies that exist, and presumably, at least up until now, like, based on probes and whatnot, like, are not lived on. But they're each, like, incredible. Like, I forget, I think it's on one of the moons of Jupiter or something. It literally just rains diamonds. (laughs) Like... That's crazy, but right, also, all these... like, why does it exist? It doesn't have to exist. Like, there's no reason, realistically, for it to exist, but it does. Yeah, there's just shit out there that will have no bearing on the next few thousand, at least, or, like, you know. Probably Who millennia. knows how technology will progress, but yeah. either way, like, there's shit that we know we can't reach for a thousand years, even moving at the speed of light. Yeah. And it's just out there. And it's every day, you know, if it's a planet, the sun like rises on these rocks <laughs> that no creature, nothing has ever set foot on or exists. probably not even bacteria exist on it. You know, like a striking, a, a landscape can speak to people. Yeah. We can look at stuff and go, oh yeah, there's like meaning there. Yeah. Like I, wow. Like look at the shape of this, how beautiful it is. And it's like, there are landscapes probably unimaginably greater than, you know, like Angel Falls in uh, South South America. Yeah. Like one of the largest waterfalls in the world. Yeah. But there's a waterfall probably 100 times larger on some planet spinning around just out there doing its thing. And it's like, why is it there? Yeah. No, and actually, I forget where I heard this the other day, but it was kind of interesting to me. You said Angel Falls. Um so apparently if you look at where Pangea, when all the continents were together, Angel Falls was like Pangea? The this single continent before continental drift kind of ripped them all into pieces. I know. But Pan- you said Pangea. What do you say? Pangea? Yeah, fuck you. Um <laughs> Okay. Tomato tomato. <laughs> I don't know I've ever heard anyone say Pangea. 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 Uh, I think that's probably more accurate to the South American dialect. Who came up with it? Pff, I have no fucking clue. I, I think it was a Spanish scientist who kind of postulated that that had been something at one point. Honestly, I, I don't know enough to make any assertions. But 
what I was kind of getting at is so apparently at one point, basically where Angel Falls is, was somewhat connected to um, the African continent. And then obviously at some point they drifted apart, yada, yada. But if you look at the animal species that live on top of that bluff that formed. Right. They're like. They're literally straight out of Africa. Like they're closer genomes to African wildlife than they are to the animals that live below them yeah because they they weren't able to get down off of the bluffs it was like yeah. they've just been stuck there yeah just it's like madagascar how it's its own island so the species on it are just they're their own weird genome yeah no and i mean it's so crazy obviously kind of hearkening back to master and commander i love the scenes where they're pulling into the Galapagos Galapagos oh, Jesus <laughs> that was bad Galapagos Islands for the first time Galifianakis Islands <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> between two ferns and um like that scene is so cool and honestly that's why I say that film's kind of a bro film is because it really kind of appeals to that what we were talking about yesterday where the it's like call to adventure call to adventure discovery brotherhood type vibes yeah um and also war and purpose and all that. Yeah, you know, that's actually something I, I've i been thinking about, too. Why is it that... I, obviously, warfare has been a male enterprise as long as it's been around, for the most part. And recently, we're starting to see women enter combat. But still, there's this element of, like, growing up, war films grip me. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, this is this is the... I don't know. This is the highest form of brotherhood yeah. that can exist is men who share share their experience of war. Yeah, like shared trauma and stuff. But also, like, I think all of us long for loyalty and trustworthiness and also, like, being able to, like, lean on a brother. You know what I mean? Because, like, it kind of, I think it goes back to the nature of man. Uh, and I don't mean humankind. I mean men. Yeah. Uh, is that, you know, you're really only as good as your support group. Like that whole joke where it's like, look at your five closest friends. If you're not talking about crypto and <laughs> and uh, tax fraud, then you need a new friend group. But like, I mean, yeah. truly, I think like, especially with men, like I think women can and have been islands unto themselves, but men are only as good as those around them. Yeah, I heard Jordan Peterson said that like women have their purpose in life given to them where they're if they at least from a, mother, a biological standpoint right, like, to carry a child and nurture it yeah so it's very clear like you you have a teleological there's telos to your biology yeah whereas like men their contribution to birth and recreating is just you know dumping some sperm and it's like we love doing that. And then we get to walk away. Whereas a woman is saddled with that like responsibility for nine months. Yeah. So the man in the meantime, like needs purpose. Yeah. And it's like, I don't, what, what do you do if you don't become a father or you don't adopt some kind of responsibility? It's like, you're just left with this like vacuous hedonistic, existence and it's it's not fun for people yeah no and obviously i think in 
modern society and i'm trying to not like outpace my actual knowledge here if you know what i mean like not overextend myself but basically the modern man has had a lot of those responsibilities kind of stripped away like if you think about you know the amount of fatherless homes and all that right who has to you don't have to take care of your wife yeah or the no woman, the government you get pregnant, that. The government can <laughs> yeah um you know like I think that is kind of contributing to that same despondence that you were speaking on last night. Um, the apathy of men in first world countries, because like, we're not fighting for survival anymore. There's literally nothing profound that you have to do. You know what I mean? Right. And it's like a, men are waiting for something to bring us to our feet. Yeah. And that, I, I mean, honestly, I always kind of joke. I'm like, I think this generation needs a world war. <laughs> Because, like, you know, I think I, uh, at this point, that's the only thing that'll actually unify us as a country again. We need a common enemy. And that's why I was kind of appalled that COVID didn't get turned into, like, this is something the whole world can unify around. It just got so splintered and, you know, we were for attached. Like, everybody was on the same page for, like, two weeks. Yeah. The first two weeks of shutdown. Yeah. And I've heard this said about, um, obviously, we're too young to have really, like, experienced 9-11 but i've heard this so many times whenever 9-11 comes around people say i i don't miss 9-11 but i do miss the feeling i had as an american on 9-12 yeah the day after when everyone was everyone kind of took a step back and said holy shit like we do share a country we do like we all can pull in the same direction right now Mm -hmm. and we want to help new york it was, you know, it's the iconic piece that represents the country, and it was, it just came under attack. Yeah. And so we can all bond around that. If you're from the Midwest, you're shining up, you're going to a draft station, and it's like, you're doing it, so are the people in L.A., even though, you know, maybe a few weeks prior, like, you wouldn't have ever wanted to share a beer with that guy, but now you want to go to combat together. Yeah. Well, and it is kind of interesting, because at least, like, the... I think a lot of people kind of um, don't give a shit about 9-11 anymore slash are disrespectful of it where it's like, what did we really lose? A couple bankers? Huh, who cares? Yeah. You know, like it's just amazing the laissez-faire approach that people have for that. Whereas I grew up in the East Coast. My dad was in the city during 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had friends whose parents didn't come back. I had members of our church who never came back. I had, you know... I like I got my first bike on September 12th and we have a uh, a home video of me riding around our tennis court on my first bike and my aunt's there for no reason according to me as a kid and we had a couple other family friends there for no reason who were from out of town like my aunt was from California yeah she was staying in the hotel that the world trade center fell on too. So, um, you know, after she didn't have any of her stuff or anything, it all got kind of destroyed and covered in soot and all that shit. So like, it's this really weird juxtaposition in that video of me just like joyfully ignorant. Like I had some idea something was going on, but like first bike, bruh, you know, that's exciting as a kid, right? You're all of what? Four or five. Yeah. So, 
you know, there's this video of me and everyone else just looks miserable, shell-shocked. I mean, my dad ran out of the city on foot because he knew after the first one hit, he was like, this is it. This is a fucking terrorist attack. And so he hightailed it out of the city, whereas everyone else was like, oh, I still got meetings. Oh, I got to finish this paperwork and shit. He was already out of the city. He, you know, he hightailed it out. So like for a lot of people, it's like they didn't touch that. Like it's so far removed and foreign for most kids in today's generation. And even in ours, because a lot of kids were too young or too far removed to really care. Yeah, like I have zero. I was alive, I was two. Yeah. So I have no recollection of what it was like to be there that day. So I've only ever heard the stories. And I that is a definitely... That is one of the moments I think you can divide generations on is just, were you old enough to remember where it actually was like significant? You know, you yeah. got, you sent home from school, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that it was profound and you were able to think about like, Oh, what does this mean for the country? Those kind of things. Like if you weren't old enough, then generationally you grew up a very different person. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. Sorry, this is definitely a spider web. But you were talking about like you're two at the time. Mm-hmm. Sometime around like two to four, you just get the uh, patch and you get consciousness uploaded. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like there's this video I saw one of my friends. She's a teacher of like a preschool or something like that. And there's just this video that she has of this kid like kind of looking around the room like semi terrified. And she's like, I think someone just got consciousness like that's so weird to me that like you exist without being conscious for so long, but like that's so formative to your psyche pre consciousness, pre expression, all of that pre memory, even like my earliest memories. I've said this with friends. Like I think life really kind of started when I was 10. Yeah. Because before that, I know I went on vacations with my family and we traveled to the east coast and i met relatives and stuff because those people when i meet them now are always like oh my god you were just a little baby when we last saw you yeah now i'm like well i'm an adult i never met you yeah because i didn't uh, you know because i was too young yeah it didn't matter yeah they were not real at that time no it is around 10 I, i feel like around 10 years old stuff that happened to you people you met important Mm -hmm. things are still important to you yeah you can remember those those are profound and interesting yeah no i think it's interesting kind of based on that because like i definitely have some like spots in my childhood that i remember Mm -hmm. like i remember going to chicago for my dad's best friend's wedding when i was like three or four but i only remember very small pieces of it like we went to the Buckingham Fountain near Millennium Park. I know it's not in Millennium Park, but it's near it. You know, the huge fountain. Mm. And, like, the wind was pretty high up. Like, it was a windy day. So the spray from the fountain started blowing towards me, and I was terrified. But that's all I remember about that whole trip. And I don't remember much before or after that, but, like, for some reason I remember that. Yes. I, I too, think that a lot of the stuff you experienced when you were younger you probably remember best as just vignettes almost 
Yeah, there, it's like I remember colors and how I felt. Yeah, I couldn't like pick out faces and tell you who was there, and you know, I, I like I kind of remember my babysitters that I had like way back in the day, and certain small things, but it, they're not like they're not the memories that I carry or recall. Like when I'm laying in bed, I'm I'm never dreaming back on my you know, one through five years. Yeah. Instead, I like most often I think I'm reflecting on stuff from high school or college now. And those two things, like, you know, those are social interactions. This is when you kind of like develop your whole mode of being. I don't know. Like you kind of understand a little better where you fit in a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. However small, however big, like you just kind of get the idea of like, Oh, like, you adopt a certain personality, you kind of know who certain people are and you can get their vibe. And then the people who you meet uh, when you're really young, I've found are always like the blueprint for where I place people that I meet now in the future. So it's like, if I, if I meet somebody, I'm like, Oh shit, that reminds me of this friend from back then. Yeah. Like they immediately go there. And I, I think that happens in like literally the first one to three seconds of like meeting someone new. Yeah. Either I have a template for who this person is before, or they're very interesting. There's someone very new. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is interesting. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah. No. Um, kind of going back a little bit towards like memories and whatnot, like, mm-hmm. um, and the vignettes and how you remember things as a kid. Like I remember. So as part of my like nine 11 ting, um, I was watching TV, my mom or like the, my mom came in, switched the channel. It was the news. The towers were on fire. She starts crying. But in my mind, I couldn't rectify. I was like, why this is like King Kong because a couple of nights before or weeks before, we were in a Chinese restaurant and King Kong was playing like the old ones, like the old Japanese King Kong. And my dad was like, Oh, look at that. Isn't that so cool? Like they use models. Like that's, that's a movie. Um, the Japanese made, and it's about this monster alien who, you know, attacks cities and stuff. And so on my head, I'm seeing nine 11 on the TV and I'm like, why is she geeking about a movie right now, bro? Mm-hmm. Like, and then we drove out to Port Jeff to pick up my dad because he took the ferry from Queens to Connecticut where we were living. And um, I mean, it just like it all seemed weird. Like I knew the vibes were off, but I had no way of understanding what was going on. But I remember like a piece of the car drive back because my dad was just like silent, like he uh, processing clearly a fuckload of trauma. Like we were watching the Avengers and uh, the scene where New York's under attack, like my dad couldn't watch. Wow. Yeah. Like any war movie that has anything to do with New York, if he sees a building and an explosion, he literally can't watch it. Right. How crazy that that is your dad's lived experience for us. It's history we had to learn. Yeah. You couldn't, what you whatever you do recall about like nine eleven, you know? Yeah, I wasn't there. It's not yeah, it's it was history to you. 
Yeah, well, and for me, it was like the only understanding I had of it until I could put the pieces together was, huh, this person's gone. Hmm, that person doesn't come around anymore. Mm -hmm. Hmm, we don't talk about this person anymore. Huh, my parents don't go to the windows of the world for dates anymore. That's weird. Yeah. We didn't go downtown anymore when we visited the city. We stayed midtown. Like, one time I was working in New York in Midtown on Avenue of the Americas. And my dad came into the city to visit me because I was getting off. It was a late night shoot. And we went downtown because I'd never been downtown. Mm -hmm. I'd never been to uh, the World Trade Center. I'd never been to any of that. And this was like 2016. My dad's like, I've never been downtown since 9-11. Jeez. So it's just weird for me. It's like I'm looking at the memorial and I'm like, wow, that's a beautiful and fitting tribute. Whereas for him, it's like every square inch of that is just trauma, 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 trauma. And it's weird because he's also part of that generation where it's like therapy. Like, I don't need therapy. I'm a man. And it's not in some like weird shit. It's just minimize your problems because I'm sure his dad was like, get over it. You're a dude. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know. I bet you're how how old's your your dad? It's going on sixty. Okay. So I don't imagine he was like young, old enough to really experience like Vietnam, right? Well, Where... I mean, his dad was in the army during Nam, but his dad got uh he got put on the United States media liaison, so he was stationed in Virginia. Yeah. And my dad was young, young. Like, it's weird how, you know, they experienced all of these things. Like, oh, somebody put it to me in an interesting way. I'm pretty sure Joe Biden was born closer to Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural than he was to his own inauguration. Damn. That's crazy. Right? Like... That's how short history is. Yeah. Well, especially American history. Like, it all seems so far away, but, I mean, what, 250 and change at this point? Yeah. We haven't broken 300. Yeah, like, if you're 50 years old, you've been around for a fifth of American history. Yeah, no, it's absurd. And that's the interesting thing is I have a generational name. We're on the fifth iteration of my name in our family. And you look at pictures of the first, Ben the first, you know, he, uh, I mean, that's fucking Ben one. You're, yeah. you're already in, you're already in the 1800s, you know? And that's like, so our lineage of my name has existed for at least half of the country's existence. Yeah. And that's another weird thing is when you think of like the technologies of the 1800s and stuff like New York really started looking like New York at that point. And 1776 is only 25 years away from 1800, you know, so like. Yeah, like like the Brooklyn Bridge was finished uh, or being constructed right as Custer did his last stand. Yeah. <laughs> like same year, pretty sure. Yeah. So like it's just weird because you see the Brooklyn Bridge. When you're there, it's like, oh, yeah, that's a piece of modern history. You know, like you almost more so associate the bridge with like the swingers of the 1920s than you do flappers, not swingers. Yeah, flappers. Yeah. 
you know what I mean? Like you kind of associate that more with the roaring twenties and whatnot. You're like but this that, is art deco. Yeah. This isn't 1880. Yeah. Well, it's definitely like when you actually look at it, you're like, okay, that's Gothic for sure. It's like nouveau Gothic, but you know, it's just weird. Cause like in my mind, art deco is like old, but it's not. No, it's, It's crazy how short it is, and the only the only counter to that is that I think history used to take place in epics. Like it used to be like like five hundred A.D. versus like zero A.D. Yeah, not a lot of change. I don't think. I yeah. know armament changed a little bit. Then you know maybe some new metallurgy techniques, stuff like that. But ultimately, like a farmer, if you if you had been a farmer in the rural parts of the Italian slopes, and then your great 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 grandchildren, they're still farmers. The life that they each experienced and lived was not that different. Yeah, there wasn't a fundamental shift in like how they experienced life. But think about just somebody who grew up and was an adult prior to 1990 yeah you know they had dial-up internet they had all these things you had like katie Couric on the news being like well what is the internet can you explain that to us you know yeah on a live national broadcast and now it's like we all just grew up with it it was normal it was part of our life and then in 2008 the iphone comes out or 2007 yeah yeah it's like apple and the iphone and then what now? Like every single person we know has some kind of smart device. Yeah. We've got multiple laptops and computers. Well, and also you even think about the jump from the first flight to the first moon landing. Like that's an absurd yeah. leap. That happened in like, what, 50 years? Something like that? Ballpark? I think we landed on the moon in the 69. 60s. And I want to say the Wright brothers made Blue, like Kitty Hawk and like the I want to say the twenties maybe no a little earlier we had planes in World War One well duh uh f- I think Kitty Hawk was in the twentieth century though yeah no it was nineteen hundreds I think but regardless yeah, either way us, that's an absurd under, jump it took us under a hundred years to go from nobody flies to we're on the moon yeah so it took all of human existence to build a plane and that's like ten thousand million years depending on what you know time frame you adhere to young earth old earth yada yada right same with car transportation it's like we went from the horse being the fastest mode of transportation for all of human history yeah until internal combustion engines well also i and kind of jumping off of that i also think it's funny how horses went from like poor man's transport to rich man's sport in a couple years once the model t blew up and it became accessible to everyone they're like oh tiddly i'm going to go back to equestrian society like (laughs) now only rich people on horses (laughs) yeah well they're just they're just big expensive playthings that eat a shitload of hay yeah because they don't really serve the same function anymore they have no purpose yeah aside from looking pretty and jumping over things occasionally yeah maybe go out for a small hunt here's here's an interesting segue 
from horses is I watched this video by CGP Grey and he talks about AI and the new leap that humanity is about to undergo and how the paradigm has always been technology gets better and you that equals more better jobs for people. You know, like you might have looked around and said, oh, no, like this factory and assembly line is going to get rid of a bunch of jobs. Well, yeah, it did. But it freed a bunch of people up to do other things like the automation that takes place on a factory right now. You know, the the piece of automation, the mechanical arm that screws the bottle cap onto the top of a bottle. Yeah, it's like, yes, we did that rendered millions of factory workers unemployed because there's no longer a need for a bottle cap screwer. But now there's people who supervise those mechanical arms. You have technicians. It frees them up for other higher purpose. Yeah. But also, I mean, I think what you're getting at here is, you know, the advent of AI is probably going to put a lot of people out of jobs. And realistically, if AI can do, I mean, they literally have AI bots now that can write like your thesis paper for you. Right, because people used to say, oh, creative enterprise, that's something that AI can't touch. So you're always going to need artists, you're always going to need painters, you're always going to need, you know, the next yay. What if AI is just so good, and it's already creating and composing music that is indistinguishable. paintings. Paintings, yes, it is doing that. Although Dolly and stuff like sometimes renders some really weird results, but like you know th- that's not even a sophisticated AI. Yeah. So it's like no, it's just put in a bunch of art and synthesize something. Yeah. Like we're seeing we're seeing paintings already coming out. We're seeing music composition. It can write people's essays at a specific composition level, so you can tell it to write you an eighth grade essay. It can do that. You and can tell it to write a doctorate essay. If and, you want to. And they're pretty You hard can literally to tell choose apart. how many sources it'll cite and mm-hmm. the citation style and it, you know. I mean, what's the purpose of learning math anymore? Because you can literally put point your phone at a complex math equation and the phone will do it like that. Yeah, so here's the question too. Like we've always so back to the horses though. Yeah. If if horses, you know, throughout the ages were like, oh, humans are doing these weird things with uh, tractors and stuff. Like, but that, it's okay, because eventually it'll make more better jobs for a horse. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, uh, like, horses are unemployable. You couldn't put them to any useful purpose except entertainment. Yeah. That's interesting. So the so we're so about when to have you, the same thing happen, right? You substitute AI. the word, and we say, "Oh, technology gets better, and that makes more better jobs for humans." Well, we say it sounds ridiculous if you say the same thing for horses. Why aren't we replaceable with AI? And if we do do that, we like the scary part is that like it doesn't even have to be every industry all at once. So maybe there's professional jobs that'll stay outside of AI for a while, like surgeries doctors lawyers whatever yeah like those very professional niche positions that require you know judgment calls and those kinds of things and we can't trust that and improv yeah we can't trust that stuff to an ai yet but given enough time maybe eventually those will go away but right now 
with the technology that is here right now, it's just like you you could already see transportation getting annihilated, the jobs from that sector, which yeah. is a huge sector of the economy. I'm pretty sure transportation makes up, I don't know, an eighth of all the workforce in the United States. <laughs> so get rid of anything that's requires a driver and yeah, just replace well, it with once, self-driving technology. Yeah, once self-driving is perfected and whatnot, honestly, I mean, first of all, like street safety is obviously going to skyrocket and whatnot. But like once all the cars are talking with each other and shit, like... You don't even need street lights. Yeah, literally. You'll and never then, sit in LA traffic. That would be incredible. And well, and that, up. that would be the thing too. That's the selling point, right? People are going to go, oh, they're never going to take my car away from me okay, do you want monkeys driving cars or do you want instant, easy access to every part of the city always? And peak efficiency. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing I've always loved about bigger cities that are well-designed and designed around people, not around cars, is like public transpo in New York is incredible. Like, you can be almost anywhere in the city with a couple blocks of walking and maybe a subway change or two. So, like, you fly into LaGuardia or one of the JFK? And yeah, you so, can for just instance, last easy. time I flew into New York, I got off at JFK, walked to the air tram, took the air tram to the Jamaica, uh, what is that, the A train? It's the brown one. Uh, and then I took that to uh, Midtown. Then I took the E to Grand Central, and then I took the Hudson Line, or not Hudson Line, I took the New Haven Line East to New Haven, and then I took the Shoreline East to my beach house. Didn't have to fucking touch a car once, and I read the whole time. (laughs) And that sounds complex, but literally all I had to do was get on and get off a train like four times. Yeah. And I traveled without touching a car. Like, that is the ideal for me. That's why I like London and Paris. I'll do the same thing. TGV's great. The Metro's pretty good. And everything's there. Yeah. There's nothing that you are missing out on in New York with not having a car. Yeah, no. I mean, sometimes I'll take, like, surface transpo so I can see more of the city, but... Same general concept, still public transpo. So that's one thing I hate about as you go west, everything's built around the car because most of these cities were growing when cars already existed. LA used to have one of the most expansive street networks of streetcars ever in the world. Um, But uh, I think it was like Firestone and... DuPont and all these oil manufacturers, gas companies, tire manufacturers bought out the streetcars, sunk them into the ground because they're like, now you have to drive. So I think car travel is a cancer. It's a waste of time, waste of resources, yada, yada. I mean, granted, I think the car is synonymous with the ideal of the American dream and um, freedom. Because I can drive to places where public transport doesn't go, which definitely opens up more of the country to my access and whatnot. But yeah, I will say living out here in Idaho, you 
you need a car. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's honestly a barrier to entry. That's why most immigrants will go to bigger cities, even though the cost of living is prohibitively high. It's because they don't need a car, insurance, license, gas, gas, oil changes, tires. Like that's a pretty expensive barrier to entry in American society. If you're not in a city where there's public transport. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. I'm a I'm a public transport elitist. Yeah, do you think people from Europe who visit Idaho are, like, kind of stuck? I mean... Like, if you, they don't have driver's licenses? Have you ever had a friend visit here? Or even L.A. when I lived there? Or Seattle, in your case? I don't know. How, how good is uh, SeaTac? Or the, the... You can get around. Uh, it was something I got used to my first two years because I didn't bring my truck up. Yeah. So I was going to university and enjoying just kind of learning how to get around using the bus. Yeah. And the buses are pretty great. You can pretty much get anywhere you want. There are a few routes that really suck to mm-hmm. take if you don't have a car. Like you might be going through half the city that you don't need to. Yeah. In order to get far enough east or west. Yeah. Um, but regardless, like you could... If you didn't have a vehicle, you could always take the the bus. Yeah. And then on top of that, they had the link. And the link would take you from SeaTac and literally drop you off. It's last stop. It'll drop you off at um, the University of Washington. And oh, so, so you never had to take a car to the, to the uh, airport? Typically, no. I mean, most of the time, because friends know that it takes longer if you hop on the link and stuff, they'll offer to come pick you up at the airport because... If you don't hit traffic, it's not that long. Um, but that's another nice thing, too. Traffic's really bad. If you're on the link, you don't give a shit. Yeah, no. Definitely times when I, I'd be driving in L.A. and I'd be envious of the people on the metro zooming past me. And then there's other times where I'm in the HOV and I blow past them. But regardless, like, it's nice to have that option. Mm-hmm. And uh, beyond just that, it's like, at least in LA, the public transportation was so bad. Like, unless you had very specific route that you went on that just so happened to have a station at here and here. Like, if I wanted to get to my job in Woodland Hills, they had bus stations right next to where I worked, but it would take me five hours to get there via public transport, and it would take me two hours to get there via car. Mm -hmm. 60 miles, you know. But still, I think that's absurd because from New York, it's like I could be anywhere in two hours. <laughs> I could be in Philadelphia in two hours. I could be on my way to D.C. in two hours, you know. Yeah, that is crazy. Growing up out west, like, I don't have the idea that there's an alternative in in mind. Well, because you grow up in a town that's completely car-centric. Yeah. I just assume that cities equal dense population yeah, and, and that's kind of travel. That's kind of the thing is like really in order for public transportation to work, you have to have a sufficient population density that exists. And the public transportation has to be good enough that it's an incentive like where a lot of people can make the decision to take it. So it's kind of one of those things where it's like a lot of cities want to develop public transportation, but you're essentially going to have to provide good, reliable, on time, often, and 
good coverage for the whole city for an entire generation before it starts even making a dent. You know what I mean? Because the reason people don't take trains in uh, uh, L.A. is because, you know, it's Amtrak or Metrolink or Metro. And the trains come once every 20 minutes, which isn't often enough to be real, like a realistic option. There's not enough coverage where it's like 80% of the trips I take, I couldn't realistically take public transportation. Yeah. So it's like you have to build out an extensive network that's going to lose money for basically an entire generation. And you basically have to establish yourself as consistent, reliable, and useful for an entire generation before it becomes part of someone's life. Yeah, and I am typically somebody who's against the idea that you're going to take, you're going to, you know, disincentivize the car artificially. Yeah. I, I think well, it's Well, like obnoxious. by raising gas prices and shit, that's obnoxious to me. But I think if you pr- provide a realistic alternative, granted I think that's you tax should... dollars that you're flushing down the toilet in the view of most people. Yeah, I think you should have to compete, essentially. I wish that the the public transit companies were private. No, they should be, honestly. Because if you think about it, like uh, a pretty realistic high-speed rail network is going in between Miami and Orlando currently, and it's run by Virgin. Oh, Jesus. But. Okay, it's run by Virgin. I, I believe it's Larry Ellison, uh, CEO of Virgin, is at least an investor. I don't know. I think at one point it, they were considering being like Virgin trains, but now it's like the Sun Express or something they call it. But Oh, interesting. So there's all these rail routes that are popping up, like Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, Austin. Like, what's the what's those two, uh, the twin cities in Texas that are kind of slowly merging into a megalopolis? You know what I'm talking about? They're really close, and it's like Dallas, Fort Worth. Yeah, I mean it's like the most atrocious highway conditions in the world it's like they've got 11 lanes each direction feeder roads all that shit hov lanes and it's still the worst because it's an infinite flow paradox you can't ever make enough lanes to make a highway efficient because the more lane it's like widening a river the river is just gonna match the flow demand so you widen the highway it's just gonna make traffic worse actually so, like, I think in those cities, those would be perfect candidates to really go all in on public transport because I think there's enough people commuting between those two and the suburbs in between that, like, you could realistically make a great nail rail network. So you have the in-between, which is, like, rail, and then you have light rail or subways in the city augmented by bus routes and trams. I would venture to guess you could get a couple million in ridership within 10 to 15 years because the traffic is so bad. Like, who wants to deal with that? Yeah. How did they build the subways in New York? Um, Because I think about, like, L.A. right now. And I'm like, how the fuck do you build a subway underground? Well, you know they're building a new um, tunnel underneath the Hudson? Because... um, or maybe it's the East River project, but I know they're building a couple tunnels right now. And essentially, 
today with all the red tape regulations, all that, it's so prohibitively expensive. Like I think the cost for rail in the United States on the cheap end is like twenty million a mile, and that would be like light rail. And then you get to subways, it's like a hundred million a mile or some shit. That's what I mean. Like, how do you build it? How did they ever build it? Like, who thought, oh, this is profitable, we can do this? Well, so as I understand it, there are a bunch of separate companies. So that's actually why you go to New York, there's numbered trains, and then there's lettered trains. And it was because they were owned by separate companies. Um, okay. And so, so they, they got merged at some point into the MTA. But... Um, what's what's the train of Monopoly? B&O? Rail? B&O. Uh, Pennsylvania... Uh, I mean, it's kind of, it doesn't matter. They used to all be rail operators. So like, if you think about the golden age of steam rail, you know, there was Pennsylvania, B&O, New York Limited, like all. I've heard that there's, um, like the Union Pacific Railroad was a government sponsored rail line yeah and the workers and everybody who was managing the projects were paid by the amount of track laid yeah so they purposely like made the rail lines not straight not the most efficient because they wanted to get paid for you know laying more track so they would make them go in these horrible bends and stuff that were really wide and stupid and it's like meanwhile the private rail lines they were building ahead of schedule under budget and straight and it's like and then we just we I don't understand why there was this mass push to make them all public. Yeah. Well, I think honestly also another thing is is if you think about like the red tape, even building a highway today would be pretty prohibitive because like back in the old days it'd be like, We want to build a rail line here. We're moving you out. And we'll send mobsters to come by and beat the shit out of you every day until you do, if you wanna stay. Yeah, but like with imminent domain and stuff, it's like we used to just build shit straight over. And okay, I, I get what you're saying. But I'm Nowadays, saying now it's fly. like it wouldn't fly as easily at the very least. Yeah. That's why everything goes so slow now. Plus, if everyone's built on hourly man hours and it's a government-sponsored gluttonous program, of course, people are going to milk it for all the money they can. Look, yeah. But also, I'm not like a an infrastructure expert i just happen to know just enough to be able to kind of poke fun at it but i want to look up how fast did they build the empire state building well they were in a competition with the chrysler building so i think or maybe it was the singer building okay it took one year and 45 days to build the Empire State Building. How many people died making the Empire State? Because definitely that would not be OSHA san- uh, sanctioned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I love those photos. Did you see they actually recreated the one with all the people eating lunch on a beam recently yeah. in New York? Lunch on a high rise or whatever. Yeah. That famous photo. I mean, that's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Well, and you look, their safety gear was like non-existent they used to throw hot rivets to each other through the air hammer it in next one like definitely i think a lot of it okay get this yeah how many do you think died like 15 
Another guess. 25. Five. Damn, really? Yeah. Huh. Go figure. How many people died making the uh, football arena in Qatar? Qatar? I think it was like 500 migrant workers died or some shit. Like, that's absurd. And I just think it's so funny that, like, FIFA and stuff is virtue signaling all this inclusion and shit, but they're fine having a host country kill 500 migrant workers after they stole their passports and forced them to stay in country and work. Qatar World Cup chief says between 400 and 500 migrant workers died. Yeah, so, isn't that absurd? Yeah, 500. We built the Empire State Building. Five die. It goes up in a year and 45 days. Yeah. And it's like, I, I'm i pretty sure I have this friend who lives downtown here in Boise. Their elevator was out for like, not their elevator, sorry. The staircase in the building like broke or something. I don't even know how a staircase breaks. How did the fire code not like come in and shut the building down like instantly? Yeah. Well, it took them three years to get it finished or something. That's probably just because of how hard it is to get contractors to do anything these days because they were previously. Yeah. And I I also get it's a it's a false comparison. But at the same time, it's like they're both construction, you know. Like, we used to throw shit up so fast, and now you couldn't dream of building a high-rise in downtown Boise, and it takes less than two years. Yeah, no. Uh, I mean, I think probably a lot of that has to do with union and all that, because I'm... Plus, I mean, when you sign a union, you're forced to have this many people from each union on your job and some of them, maybe their entire job is just sitting around because they're forced to be there, but they don't have anything to do. Um, and beyond that, so you have builders unions, which are probably slowing down the process. You have a lot of bureaucracy in the city that is slowing down the process. You have approvals, you have like, just think about how hard it is to get a building approved to be built. I mean, I'm sure that's even here in a small and developing city, I'm sure the approval process is probably five to 10 years before you even break ground. Yeah. I mean, I watched, I watched my friend try to open his restaurant It took him a year just to get it up to code and pass all the inspections and deal with the government permits and stuff. It's like, we're building a culture that seems so hostile to entrepreneurship. And it's like, we wonder why the economy's slowing down, why things are harder, why everything's more expensive. It's like, we there's so much red tape in the way of free enterprise. Yeah, and I get it. In some cases, I think it's probably not a horrible idea that unions basically force us to not work 14-hour days and like definitely goes a long distance as far as not taking advantage of workers and whatnot. But... Part of me is also like, dude, if I want to work 14-hour shifts, let me. You know? Yeah, I heard a good argument. Stuff like the minimum wage. The minimum wage artificially raises the price of labor to a certain level, meaning that people whose only skills are, you know, like less than market value, you can't hire them. You can't hire the, like, guy who is literally worth less than, I mean, what's the minimum wage in Seattle right now? It's like, 
$19. I don't know. It's something absurd. You know, it's like $16 an hour. And it's like, I think that's in LA, it's like 15, but they want to push it to like 25 within the next couple of years. Yeah. And this is the problem, right? Well, what if you're not worth $25 an hour? Well, that's when you get automation coming in and taking all those jobs. Yeah. Like, I think it's actually, it it's discriminatory against the people who are the most unskilled laborers in a workforce. If you have to pay them an artificially high rate, you can, I mean, and I understand the whole argument of like, well, it's not a living wage. And it's like, well, some jobs weren't ever designed to be living wages. Some things are your first starter job. It's like, those are the things you go and you do so you can acquire some skills. So you advance. Yeah. And it's like, if you just rip all of those completely unskilled positions away from, you know, our youngest workers or, you know, the individuals in the country with the lowest IQs and stuff that could benefit from having some kind of gainful employment that's beneath the minimum wage. But instead you're like, ah, no, you don't get any of that. Yeah. Because the people that they're raising the minimum wage for are people who are adults and probably should have moved on to bigger and better things at that point, you know? Yeah. Um, cause like, honestly you think about like McDonald's and shit, like I would have done that in high school and been big balling. You know what I mean? Like $7 an hour. Let's go. I'm, I I just got a hundred dollar paycheck. I'm balling out for the next week. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I don't think the idea was, Oh, I'm going to work at McDonald's and afford an apartment. Like, yeah. And, and also, I mean, that's why a lot of those companies are low key trying to do like college support programs and stuff like tuition re- reimbursement type stuff. Um, and I, cause it incentivizes college workers to come in because I think that's their target. I do worry. I think sometimes maybe it just comes across as very callous to say, Oh yeah. Like, you work at McDonald's and you can't afford an apartment. Well, you work at McDonald's, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, trust me, I get it. I'm working at a bar. Mm -hmm. Like that's not per se skilled labor at all. Granted, it is a little bit, you get what you give because tips are literally 90% of my paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I can understand how people get pulled towards, you know, parties that would support incentive programs and handouts and government subsidies and stuff. It's like, it, it, I feel like it breeds out of compassion when you feel like there's people who need a leg up. So we got to give that to them, you know, we're, so we're going to lean on the government to do that and expands the size of like our, our welfare programs. And then, you know, it usually is individuals on the right who are like, social security's bankrupt. Let's just fucking get rid of it, or we have to raise taxes, you know. But we should on we shouldn't raise taxes, so we should get rid of Social Security. And it's like, yeah, maybe if everybody was a great steward of their money and opened a four hundred one k, or they're you know contributed to a Roth from the time they were twenty, yeah, everyone could retire. But the problem is most people wouldn't, and that social safety net of having Social Security, you take that away. All of a sudden, like, grandma's homeless, you know? Yeah. You can't touch it once it's already there. Once the handout's available, it's 
political suicide to say, oh, I'm going to get rid of this. Well, and that's kind of the thing is like we just had another we just had another debt crisis thing where it's like, oh, are we going to raise the ceiling or are we going to shut down the government? Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, shit, it's going to get to the point where we have too much debt to ever pay back and we're borderline already there, too. But I mean, granted, what is it like 30 trillion more than that, I think. What did we grow up with it being? It like crossed 20 and everybody like kind of shit their pants because that was more than... Well, so during Obama's presidency, I believe in the first term, he doubled our national debt. So every president before him had created less national debt than his policies did in one term. Trump also low-key ballooned our national debt. Oh, yeah. Okay. Current national debt, thirty-one trillion. Yeah, okay. Thirty-one point five trillion, which means every single American owes ninety-five thousand of that. Like essentially, you know. Yeah, that's ninety-five thousand dollars in debt per person. Yeah, it's absurd. And uh, obviously, <laughs> yeah, obviously, in an interconnected. Um, I mean, part of me wonders why, like, and I know why, but I'm saying it's like the government prints their own money willy-nilly at their own whim. They take out debt at their own whim. Like, and it would be social suicide to, you know, cut off all these programs that people vote for you to put in. Like, I don't even think, like, the the Trumpers would vote for getting rid of Social Security. No, I don't think so. But that's what I'm saying. It's like something has to give, obviously. You know, because this is unsustainable and I've got to wonder when all this is going to come to bear. Yeah, like, do you think the country's better off if we... I don't know. We had fiscal conservatives for the last... You know, like, let's say in the 1950s after World War II, we just had a bunch of presidents that were like, we're paying down this shit, and we're never going to, you know, go over budget. Or, you know, maybe we will at times, times of war and stuff, but otherwise, like, the country's going to have a balanced budget. Like, is that, you know, do you think that matters? I do think in certain regards the extra spending has probably stimulated the economy and gained us some of the growth that we've had. Like, even if you think about how military technology has trickled down into civilian technology, like I do think government spending in some areas is probably not a horrible idea, but like I've got to think for long-term sustainability and the continued existence of our country, probably we'd be better off as a whole if we didn't have that crippling debt um i don't know i just don't think life would be as plush as it is now yeah like when do we reap the whirlwind i guess is there a certain number is there like a figure that we're gonna hit where it's just gonna be like okay in order to get this under control and have the economy grow at all, we're going to have to go through a period of just constriction, like a decade-long period of just, we have to get this under wraps. 
or does it just not like does it kind of not matter yeah you know i think that's an interesting question that i really don't know the answer to because it just feels like we treat the national debt and all these things like they're just inevitable like inevitably every year we're going to have a budget uh deficit or whatever yeah and we're just going to keep deficit spending yeah and which is absurd because like that goes against everything you're told in basic economics as a person right like you tell if you told some individual oh yeah just keep running up your credit card it's not going to matter in fact, look at how much better your life is because you were able to go out and buy all these things. You stimulated your own economy of life or whatever. But you, at no point do you ever have a plan to out-earn the debt you're accumulating. You're just like, yeah, yeah. it's whatever. I mean, and honestly, I think that's probably the allure of it and why it's gone on as long as it has. is because like it's kind of the same thing as like the global warming, whether you believe in it or not. But like, it's like, hey, you know what? It's not going to really fuck up my life. I'll probably be long dead before that comes to bear or before that becomes consequential in any way. Mm -hmm. And it just keeps pushing it down the road. It's like, hey, that's the problem for the next class of uh, senators. That's the House of Representatives can figure that one out in 20 years. Yeah, like our, you think it's going to be our generation that has to like figure this shit out? I hope to God not, because, like, we're already not going to get Social Security. <laughs> yeah, there's no way. No shot. I think it's going to collapse. I don't think it's going to get cut. It's just, like, especially now that the boomers are cashing in, like, they were paying in for a long time. And so, like, it ballooned. It had a lot of money. It worked well, yada, yada. Now it's going to be our substantially smaller generation trying to support a massive and already wealthy generation that came before us. Right. Like there's this whole generation of people that are like, uh, yeah, you've seen it interstellar, right? Social security. Didn't it start? And it was like under, I don't know. Life expectancy was like less than the age at which you were supposed to start. With yes. Withdrawing benefits. Yeah. Right now, life expectancy is... Far exceeds that. 15, 20 years longer than Social Security. Yeah. Like, I, I think it's like, what, 77 or 79? Yeah. And you can start withdrawing your Social Security benefits at like 67. Yeah. Have, so... You've seen Interstellar, right? Uh, No, I haven't actually. You have? Oh, God. I'm going to try to describe this without spoiling it, Um, but shame on you. Um, but there's like, basically the setup is the planet's dying. Blight has taken out most of our crops and that's basically all you need to know. Like the, the planet will stop basically being able to sustain human life shortly. Mm -hmm. So NASA started a program called Lazarus where they were trying to like get off the planet and right. plan A is they have like a, a centrifugal space station that they're planning on using until they can find a new habitable planet. And then plan B is basically just drop genome bombs, fertilized eggs in another planet and repopulate that way. Um, and it 
basically, I'm, I'm going to tie this all up, but basically it comes to bear or comes to light at like the, uh, the all is lost point. So beginning of act three, that plan A was never really intended to work, but people wouldn't have worked if they didn't think they could get off the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was kind of a lie constructed to make everyone participate. Um, so no one who was on earth was going to survive essentially. And that's what all this kind of feels like from a political standpoint is everyone knows this shit's not going to work, but it's kind of like mum's the word, you know, like that's the, that's the part nobody says. Right. Cause you can't have people stop paying in if they think that they'll never see the benefits of it. Well, and that's the other thing is that's tax fraud. I would stop paying in if I could. Right. But I would like, I think it's so ridiculous when I look at my, uh, my paycheck and it says like this much was taken out for taxes. This much was taken out for fed taxes. This much was taken out for social security. I'm like, bruh, I'm never going to see that money again. I'm basically like, why not just let me give it to a homeless man? <laughs> Be more useful that way. Yeah, I'm surprised that... I like. I don't understand really why defined contribution plans have just been the modus operandi for most companies until the last like 20 years. Like now it's a employer match. Yeah. So you open a 401k, you invest in it, and if you put money in it, we'll put in some additional money up to a certain point. Yeah. But we're not going to do the whole pension 20 years. Now you can retire with or 40 years. Now you're going to retire with us. Yeah. And if you leave, you may not even see any of it, but at least you paid in the whole time you were here. Like that, that model just seems absurd to me. Well, and also like, it's absurd to me too, because I could think of a million better places to put my money over throwing it into a government program. Like if they took that same money and put it into Roth IRAs starting at your first job at 18, you'd be fucking loaded by the time you're 60. That's a better retirement plan than Social Security. Yeah, and wouldn't that be a huge boon for the economy over Social Security payments? Yeah. Like... Not to mention, imagine what that would do with, like, stock prices and whatnot. It would basically, I think, stabilize because most people are not pulling out their Roth IRAs or mutual funds every time there's a dip. Yeah, so why why isn't that offered as an alternative? I feel like I haven't heard anyone suggest that. I think honestly, and this Bes- is probably like besides you know people spitballing on a podcast. I like there. I don't think there's a serious politician out there with that as his policy proposal. I think, and this is kind of venturing off into the weeds of possible conspiracy and evil government bullshit. But what's the incentive for the government to give people no need for the government? Because if the government, like, without Social Security and all this shit, like, what do you really need the government for? Paving your roads and shit? If I'm not getting welfare and I'm not getting Medicaid and I'm not getting all this, like, financial security is the enemy of the government because that means independence from the government. Yeah. You're not going to vote for people who want more power if they don't need it. Like, you don't see a need for them having it. Right. This is why, like, like, I've talked to folks and I've been like, do you have an emergency fund? And they're like, no. Yeah. And I go, okay. So if your boss were to like, you know, let's say like I'm talking to a female, right? And it's like, 
okay, so your boss like grabs your ass the next time you're at work. Can you just say I quit? Lose your health benefits, potentially. Yeah. Because maybe you can't prove it, right? So you can't go to HR and complain about it because it just happened in an elevator or something. And it's like impossible to, you know, somehow out your boss. So, you but you don't feel like you have the freedom to just walk away. Yeah. You've got your car payments. you got everything else coming up. And you don't have enough in the bank because you're living paycheck to paycheck that you need that job. Yeah. So you're willing to put up with a lot of bullshit. Same, even if it was something less heinous, right? It's not, let's, let's move away from sexual harassment. It's just, your boss sucks. Or the company is going in a bad yada, direction. Yada. Yeah. The company's going in a bad direction. And you'd like to, as a middle manager, you want to speak your mind and like say something about how we have to change the culture or do something. And it's like, but if you, you know, say this, if you question the ideas coming down from on high, like, and and question the authority of like whoever this boss is or something it's like well now you run the risk of getting fired or you run the risk of getting a negative evaluation because you challenged the status quo so you don't like you keep silent it, it's like obsequiousness like that just blind obedience yeah that's the thing more likely to feed your family well and here's another thing we're looking down at a probably pretty heinous recession coming on Part of me hopes it's as bad as 2008 and housing prices get more attainable because I have a decent amount of savings and investments that I could roll into a house pretty easily. But like even I'm talking to my girlfriend, you know, and she's so much better than this sounds. But like, you know, obviously loves window shopping and shit. And she likes thinking about things she'd like to buy. In my mind, I'm like, I got to get my food prices down to a dollar a day if I can. Because I work at a bar. Bars are generally recession-proof. So is film. Because, you know, you go see movies, whether or not you're broke as hell. That, you know, the movie replaces the Disney trip and yada yada. But, um, like, she works at Starbucks right now. Which is literally, like, got crushed in 2008. Mm -hmm. They're already limiting hours. They're already laying off people. Same thing with tech. I was talking with someone who was working at Micron tonight at the bar. She missed narrowly being laid off because she's an engineer and, you know, does a high enough skilled job that, like, she couldn't be replaced. But, like, these huge tech conglomerates are laying people off hand and fist. That used to be the stable job. That used to be the job you get if you want to get paid mm -hmm. predictably. And granted, like, if you're doing startups and shit, it's like, oh, the company ceased to exist. Time to go take my skills to another startup, blah, blah, blah. But, like, relatively low-skill labor, like, most of our generation working at Starbucks, Radio Shack, Best Buy, restaurants. Restaurants and coffees are the first consumables that get crushed when the economy gets crushed because that's all... People start button, battening down the hatches, tightening their belts. The first things to go are fancy meals and $5 coffee. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And if you're broke, broke, you still drink because you drink to forget that you're broke. <laughs> Alcohol. That's why I feel somewhat confident that I'm okay at a bar for now. But I don't know. It's, it's just everyone wants to spend money. Like, honestly, like, I got a really good paycheck after New Year's because the tips were absurd and we had a full packed house the whole 14-hour shift. 
like I felt the temptation to be like, hey, you know what? I should go get myself an Apple Watch. I've been wanting one for a long time. And then I thought, that's $300. That's half rent. I might need that. Like, most people are so impulsive. It's like, I deserve this. No, you don't You don't deserve anything. You're just doing the bare minimum by working. Yeah. How are you going to make your money work for you, not the other way around? Like, until you're putting that money away, you're seeing the goals that you already have in place. Like, unless the funds that are, like, going to allow you to purchase, the, you know, the big things, like the down payment for a house, all that stuff. It's like, until you can take care of those it's hard to argue that, yeah, you should blow it on something. And there are people who are horrible at spending money on themselves ever. And it's like, this message isn't for those folks. But for your typical consumer, the guy who's like, if it's in my bank account, it's going to get spent. It's yeah. like, that's how a lot of people are living. And some people, obviously, like, you know, you were talking with some people who are potential clients where you're like, realistically, the solution here is you need to make more money before you can even think about investments because you are not in a position to make any meaningful contribution to that at this time. Yeah. And um, granted, that, like, they only worked 30 hours, so it was like, okay, easy, step one. Get ask more your boss hours if you can. Yeah, ask your boss if you can get more hours. Obviously, that's a tough part, too, because in recession, I think so many people are like, we can't let people get overtime. You can't get to 30 hours that easily. 35 hours, I think, is where you start getting overtime. Or maybe it's 40 a week. I've always had overtime after 40. Yeah, so, like, generally that's a hard cutoff, but still it's 10 extra payable hours a week. Also, I feel like this has become the Dave Ramsey show in the last little bit. <laughs> um, we love Dave. I hate him. I do, too. He's the reason why my parents were like, hey, don't get a fucking credit card. I'm like, how the fuck am I supposed to get approved for apartments or down payments or whatever the fuck if I don't have any credit? So now I'm starting up credit way too late. And okay. I get it. They're afraid I'm going to like accrue debt. But like I spend like a pauper. So, yeah. Uh, well, how I feel about Dave is if if you're really bad with money management. He's you, a great start. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous for consumers. Spendaholics. Yeah. Like, there are ways, yes, you can get a credit card, you can use it responsibly, and you can, you know, build your credit, do a lot of things that are helpful for you, and will make, like, bigger financial decisions down the road a little easier. There are ways without a credit card to find rent, yeah, but for instance, we, me and a buddy were trying to get an apartment downtown. Neither of us have credit because we paid for everything in our life cash because yeah. we have it. We've never needed credit. They're like, um, okay. And we're like, we can literally like show you bank statements. They're like, yeah, well, we need credit. And I was like, we could legitimately down, like prepay our entire lease. And they're like, oh, do that. And I was like, that was a like kind of a joke to illustrate how ridiculous that is. And they're like, no, that's your only option. So it's like 35 grand for a year lease or some shit, or maybe it was six months for 35 grand. And it's like, I can think of a million better things to do than pay for a roof over my head for six months. I'm not accruing any value beyond a roof over my head for that price. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. 
I don't think the model of, oh, just never get a credit card, don't have credit, it's fine, figure it out. I don't think it works um, as much as people say. It does. There's also the same thing for mortgages, right? Most mortgage companies, you need a credit score. Yeah. But yeah, there is manual underwriting. There's a there's the old school method of like basically proving your trustworthiness. Yeah. But it's it makes things harder. Now, well, and the, also the probably reverse, doesn't though, is, help that... your interest rate or risk assessment. It's true. The question though is like. How much harder did pulling a credit card make your life if you were 18 and you were an idiot? And you just, the first card you pulled out, you got into like 3000 in debt. You kept paying it. Then your limits went up and you kept raising the amount of money that you had as a revolving balance. It's like every week you just kept thinking, ah, I can spend it because I'm going to be able to, you know, I'm going to get paid next month. And then I can take care of it. But then something new comes up, so you have to keep spending. Yeah. And meanwhile, you're paying 17, 24% interest on this money. Yeah, that gets out of control real quick. Right? So 24% of your paycheck comes out for taxes. Another 24% comes out on the interest expense on the loan that you had from last month. You know what I think is the most devious thing of all? Is uh, after pay. You know how you can like go to the Apple store and it'll be like, buy this for $64 a month for the next blah, blah, blah months. Or like you can even go to like Sephora and buy like a $10 palette or something. And they'll have like financing options on like $30 purchases. Yeah. The whole buy now, pay later or pay as you go. Yeah. So it's literally like in your mind, you're like, Oh, five bucks a month. That's easy. How many times does that stack up? You know, Oh, new phone. That's 30 bucks a month. New car. That's $300 a month. New this it's blah, blah, blah. But also like how many people are just going into Best Buy and after paying everything? You know what I mean? It's so I think in a I, I meet a lot of friends, they all tell me like, Oh, I'm like, I go, do you have any debt? And they're like, no. I'm like, are you making payments on anything? And they're like, well, I'm I'm paying down a loan from Best Buy for the like refrigerator that I just put in. Yeah. Or for like this thing. But you it's can like, do that for a pair of shoes now. Yeah. Like that's evil. Yes. And it says like zero APY for but like you miss a payment. I'm I can't even imagine what the fine print on that contract is. Not good. And then so anyway, basically every every phone I've bought, I've bought cash. And I will say it's always funny when I walk in and I the guy goes, yeah, so we can't add the phone to your plan unless because I'm on my parents plan. So they're like, no, we, that's I went to Best Buy to buy a new phone a couple months ago. And they're like, we need you to log into your Verizon. And I was like, I'm buying it cash. And they're like, we need you to log into your shit for monthly payments. And I'm like, I'm buying it cash. Like, what if yeah. I want what if I want it as an iPod? What if I just want to buy it as an iPod? That's what uh, basically what I told the guy. I was like, dude, um, I, I'm not going to like drag my dad here so I can buy this phone. And he's like, well, we we can't just add this to your phone plan unless you have the, you know, the, uh, I can custodian of the the SIM card out. And I was like, okay, I'm paying cash. And he's like, oh, oh, okay. Like, look at me because I'm, you know, fresh out of... No, I genuinely got turned away at Best Buy because I wanted to pay cash for a phone. They wanted me on that payment plan. 
And either that or they had no never seen someone come in and pay cash for an iPhone. See, and that's like crazy to me. I I never understood that, but I didn't realize like most of the friends, folks I know who every year they got pretty much the latest phone. Yeah. They always say, well, I get to swap for free. Yeah. It's not upgrades anymore. It's not like flip phones and shit. You know, it's like a hundred bucks. It's paid mm-hmm. off. And then it's like in you're not... two years you get an upgrade for free or some shit. This yeah. is not upgrading. It's just doing a different payment plan. Yeah, you're handing your phone like back over after a year. It, it, exactly that. It's You're leasing your phone. Yeah, so what I do, and this is the funny thing. They're like, we need the account holder's permission to add this phone, yada, yada. Every phone that I've had recently, I've just bought off a friend for the trade value. Mm-hmm. So That's like, such a good way to go. I'm bringing it back to Verizon. They said they'd give me 500 for it. And I'm like, shit, I'll give you 500 for it then. Perfect. Like this phone, I traded a buddy for or gave him money, got it from him, pop the SIM card in, log into the Apple ID. Bam, it's there. Yeah, like, I'm pretty sure this is so the doable. same thing. It's literally like they just want you on that payment plan, bro. Well, and it's so and much that's going to be the subprime debt loan or the subprime debt crisis of our generation, I think, is going to be afterpay. Because it's got to be breaking into the billion dollar industry right now. Yeah, I mean, Apple, like, I mean, Apple launched its own bank. Yeah. Well, and that's because <laughs> Tim Cook wants to, that's why they did Apple TV Plus, they did Apple Music, everything's on subscription now, and they're doing their own bank. And why would they do that? Because they know there's money there. Oh, yeah. So how are they fucking you over? If there's a business that exists, like, why does Afterpay exist if it's 0% interest? Like, they're not making any money on this. Well, and it's also, I think, about frictionless payment. The idea that you're going to just, you don't even have to pull your wallet out of your pocket. Yeah. Well, and that's why I honestly, like, I love the convenience of debit cards and also Apple Pay, but I resent them, too, because it, it disconnects me from spending money out of my account like it's not a material thing yeah like when you watch cash leave your hand and you make a purchase and then you know they count out the change they hand you back less than what you just gave up it like hurts yeah well and that's that's something like i try to keep generally big bills like fives and ones i'll let go tens i'll let go 20s i always have that little urge where i'm like do i really want to break this for this like do yeah, i really want to enough to me yeah and it like same like breaking a hundred i almost never spend my hundreds like i'll keep them because that's like oh i don't want to break that yeah um but well and that that's the thing right it's like you go from cash bills like that you had to carry around to okay well i'll do it with my debit card well, you know what? I'm not going to use my debit card. I'll use my credit, which I can pay later. And I don't know what my current balance is. So I assume I'm pretty good. Like, I don't actually have to look at my current bank account balance. Yeah. Because the worst case, it's on the credit card. I can move some money over from another account and make sure it's taken care of. And then even less friction is the phone. That Just the idea that, oh, like this thing I watch TikTok on, all my YouTube videos, I see pictures of my, you know, my niece's like birthday and stuff. I can just, I can just pay with that. You know, I just pull out my phone and it goes boop on the scanner. Yeah. You double click a button and it's good. Yeah. You don't even have to enter your passcode. It's just, it scans your face and it's good. Yeah. 
No, it's it's very, very easy to spend money now. And like that's one nice thing, I guess, about being as broke as I was towards the end of my tenure in L.A. is I check my bank account every time I'm going to spend money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, You know, I was probably a better steward of my money at my brokest. And that, that was like a, a pretty good test yeah. of my ability to like manage things because I, mean, I went into like $7,000 of debt my freshman year of college mm-hmm. in student loans and stuff. And I knew I was getting RTC stipends and different things. And so I was like, well, how the hell am I in debt? Like I should have had enough money to cover everything, but uh, there's only a few grand in my account. Like even if I wanted to pay all this off tomorrow, I couldn't. And at that moment I started going to work Um you know, at a coffee shop and that serve food and stuff. And it's like, I'm breaking my back, washing dishes and doing all this shit. And then I'd get my paycheck and I just couldn't break the idea that like, there's still more liability outside of my account than I can even cover. Yeah. So now like it just became, okay, I'm spending absolutely nothing or as little as humanly possible. And every dollar I earn from this point out is going directly to pay that loan down. Yeah. And that is a miserable feeling. Yeah. Every check you get is not yours. That's one thing I actually really admire about my girlfriend is she has like a chime card. She has an app on her phone. So every time she spends money, she turns the card on, loads it with how much she's going to spend and then turns it off. Hmm. So like every time she's making a purchase, she's looking, what do I have in my account? What am I spending? Like the other day we were at the store and she was looking at like rechargeable batteries, which she wants to get for a camera. Um, and she opened up her account and she was like, honestly, like I don't need these right now. Cause like, I don't know about you. One thing that like legit pisses me off is when people misuse the word need or investment. Mm-hmm. Like one time I came back from the shoe store, uh, I'd sold a bunch of like very valuable and rare clothing down in Fairfax. So I bought myself a nice pair of shoes and I was showing them to my girlfriend at the time, my ex now. And she was like, Oh, that's a good investment. And I was like, no, it's a horrible fucking investment. Absolutely atrocious. Like that is not an investment. You need to like rephrase how you think of things. Yeah. But it actually pisses me off when people are like, (laughs) I need blank. And I'm like, "Mm, that's discretionary spending. You don't need it. Right. (laughs) Yeah, discretionary, you know, um, the other term is disposable. Yeah. Disposable, people hate that term because that is essentially after all of your, you know, your rent, the stuff of life, the things that, you know, you need in order to actually, like, keep breathing. Like, once that's all paid, it's all called disposable income. And it's like... Out of your disposable income comes the money that you should be setting aside for, like, savings and other stuff. And people are like, oh, it's not disposable. Like, yeah. you know, I got to take my family and I got to eat and everything. Yeah. And it's like, yes, the, you do. The way I frame it that I think is healthy or good is my disposable income I use for investments. And what actually becomes my disposable income is the money I make from those investments and assets. Unless you're trying to grow those accounts. And- yeah, but that's what I mean, is it's like, I don't want to work for my fun money. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
I'll work for my survival money, but my fun money comes out of money that I didn't do anything to earn, except for put it in a mutual or invest it somewhere. Yeah, there is an idea that's interesting of like, the purpose of investing is that eventually you build up enough of a lump sum that the money that comes out of your investments now, that's like enough that you can live on it instead. Yeah. Like if you get, if you get your portfolio up to a million and you earn 7% on a million dollars, that's 70,000. Yeah. That's, you know, a, a respectable salary. Yeah. So if you just had a million dollars, and if like, you can keep your living expenses down at the same level that they were that like when you were broke, yeah, for as long as you can, you can still keep investing on that return, right? Like in college, I I broke down my budget and I was like, I got by. I rented a place in Seattle with roommates, but I still like found a place and rented it. And had my car and had everything. And I think I'm pretty certain my monthly spend was $1,700 or something. Yeah. And that was in Seattle. Like, I had a job. I went to college. I had, like, all the other stuff. And the college, granted, the tuition was paid by ROTC. Yeah. But if you took me out of college and I wasn't working on a... Oh, yeah. If I wasn't working on a degree, then... I still was going to have enough that I was like, I was still putting away like 500 bucks a month. Yeah. I'm making like 17,000. Oh no. Like making like basically 20, 25,000 a year. Yeah. It was like, there was still enough money at the end of a year that I was putting stuff away. Yeah. And that was like bare bones living. And as my income increased in the last three years, like when I went to Bullock and I was earning like full-time money, as an officer, it's like, I didn't live differently. There were incremental growth in the spending. like, And there were certain things I needed to buy, or at least had been waiting to buy for a long time, that I wanted to get, like a you know a new laptop. Granted, the laptop I actually had crashed, so I went and I bought a laptop, which I, I, I think I needed at the time. And then, um, you know, like I bought my first firearm. That yeah. was like sort of a need it's like a carry piece you know beyond that like there weren't that many things i bought just like oh willy-nilly let's go crazy you know for the most part it was just like cool well now i'm right here i'm earning more and the plan is i'm gonna put more away until i get to that point where okay like i've maxed out my roth i've maxed out my 401k and I'm taking care of everything else. I've got the down payment for the house like scheduled to take place in three years. Now I have money. That's like, yeah, I could spend this on sweetening the things I do in life. Yeah. Yeah. But until I'm there, like anything I spend is, is fighting against the future I want. Yeah. Because the return on money that I save right now as a young person you know, it's like the uh, time value of money. Every dollar I put away is worth 40 times what it is right now if I let it grow and it earns 10% per year. So that means every dollar I'm not saving is really like $40 I'm spending right now in my future. Yeah. Also, uh, we're at an hour and 50 minutes. 
Oh my god. So, I think it's time for that chocolate milk for me. I don't know about you. I don't know if I'll do chocolate milk, but oh, I think it is. Yeah, whiskey. We could, something we could along definitely those lines. break. I definitely. I'm not editing this tonight, so I say we throw on an Epi of Band and Brothers. Band of Brothers. If we got time, what is it? Two a.m. All right. That's not happening. Fuck. All right. Well, say la vie. Say la year. Say la vie. Thanks everybody if you're listening. Yeah, if you made it this far, shout out to you. And also, you're an economics nerd. Yeah, we got to well, just master budgeting and <laughs> investments, and we don't, we scratched the surface. Not even. I feel like this is not even one hundred and one shit. But yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know that this episode is going to be interesting at all to anyone, but hey, if it is, power, more power to you, and I'm glad that we said anything remotely interesting. So I have a proposition we get blitzed and see what, what conversation ensues, because this felt dry. Yeah. This. I'm not going to lie, even having that little glass of whiskey the other day during the podcast, I think lubricated it a little bit. Helps loosen people up. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. But I'm also dead tired right now. Yeah. So. Energy was. Energy low. was an issue, but you know what? This was more about doing it than the quality of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right, listeners. This is for you. No, this isn't for you. This is for future you. When we're taking the same grind set that we're creating right now to make actually interesting content. Because you got to start with the first step. This is the second one. So yep. we said we'd do it, and we did. With that being said, love you. I hope you have a good night, day, whatever. Whatever time you're tuning, I hope you enjoy that time. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, go forth and conquer. Do something dank today to prepare for a bright and awesome future. Buy lunch for a homeless man. Yeah. Pay for someone's gas if you can. I, you know, I can't always do that for myself, even. So. Yeah, pass it, pass it forward. You get that Starbucks. Give someone a smile for free. Be super nice. Give a twenty percent tip on something small. Hey, actually, tip your bartenders. Yeah, please tip me more, please. Really nice. Anyway. Contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you.